Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Neil Chilson, Senior Research Fellow for Technology and Innovation at Stand Together and former Chief Technologist at the FTC. We will discuss the FTC's proposal to create a trade regulation rule on commercial surveillance and data security. So welcome to the show, Neil. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this uh, because I sort of love your personal project in relation to this rulemaking project, which we will get to shortly. But before we talk about that, I was wondering if you could sort of set the stage a little bit for listeners who may not be following the FTC's rulemaking activities with uh, great, great diligence, right? So what's going on here? Why is the FTC proposing new rules? What what prompted it to initiate a rulemaking process? And and why is it a big deal? Yeah, so um, just a little bit of introduction to the uh, Federal Trade Commission. Uh, It is the primary uh, federal consumer protection agency uh, with very general jurisdiction with a a few very small carve-outs across all uh, the economy. And so uh, and it has this, uh, another role um, as the one of the major enforcers of competition law in the U.S. Um, on the consumer protection side, the FTC has been doing privacy enforcement for a very long time. Um, some of it under specific statutes from Congress, uh, and some of it under uh, most of it, I would say, under its general consumer protection authority to police unceptive and, or sorry, unfair and deceptive acts and practices. Uh, Hundreds of cases, a bunch of workshops, a bunch of guidance, no rules. For the pretty simple reason that the FTC has declined to do rulemakings um, since it got uh, hand slapped is not even the the right term. It was more like a something much more severe than a hand slap um, from Congress when it tried to do a bunch of broad trade regulations in the 70s and early 80s. Um, Congress actually defunded the agency for a, a, a small period uh, when it and the you know the Washington Post I think called it the agency the national nanny, um, uh, and so. The FTC has not done a lot of rulemaking since. And in fact, Congress put in uh, previous to that, but then also uh, put some more constraints after that, a specific set of rules that are different from how other regulatory agencies do rulemakings. And so these are called Magnuson-Moss rulemakings. And uh, the the rulemaking that we're talking about today is captioned uh, about commercial surveillance and data security. You'll note that privacy is not in that title. And that's a pretty interesting choice by the agency who, uh, because this is at core, a lot of the concerns are privacy concerns, but they've, they've described them as commercial surveillance concerns. So this is a big deal because uh, the FTC has not done general privacy rules. It does have some specific privacy rules where it was authorized by Congress around things like children's online privacy. Um, uh, where it was specifically authorized by Congress to do rulemakings to implement those laws, but it has not done a general one. And it started out this process by having a very broad, what's called an advanced notice of proposed rulemaking that has, I think, 97 different questions. 
It has no actual proposed rule in it. It is an unusual way for the commission to start off a proceeding like this uh, and looks much more like the type of rulemaking that the agency got in a lot of trouble for doing in the 70s. So that's why it's a big deal. That's why it's interesting. Um, uh, and I, I should add the one other piece of context here is that it comes at a time when Congress has been constantly trying to push through a national secure, a national privacy and data security uh, law um, and probably is the closest that it's ever been to doing so, although with all things legislative, um, that doesn't mean it's close necessarily, <laughs> but it, it, it's the closest it's ever been. So in that context, the FTC is sort of, is, is uh, maybe, I think one way to say it positively is jumping into the gap. A uh, way you might say it less positively is usurping Congress's role. Um, uh, and so, so there's a lot of action. I think 11,000 comments were received since uh, the docket opened, which is a lot for uh, an agency rulemaking, um, especially uh, one at the FTC. So that's a lot of, that's a lot of uh, background, but I hope it gives your listeners some sense of the, the context here. So, so Neil, to the best of your understanding, in a kind of big picture, holistic sense, what do you think the FTC wants to accomplish with these new rules? Like, what are the big picture goals of this process? Yeah, I mean, that's a great it's a great question. I, I should say, uh, as another matter of context, the uh, the agency under uh, Lena Khan has kicked off a bunch of other rulemakings as well. So this is a this is part of a new shift in tactics at the agency um, to uh, become more of a regulatory agency uh, than uh, you know a primarily an enforcement agency. That's that's my read of it. So I think that is one of the things it's trying to accomplish, right? Um, build up the the muscle memory for doing rules rather than uh, its traditional role of, of primarily being an enforcement agency. Um, I think with specific, uh, it, it's hard to know exactly what specifically this rulemaking is intended to accomplish because the, the questions are so broad and the field is, is so broad. Like uh, there are questions about algorithmic bias in here. There are questions about data security. There are questions about, um, you know, some aspects of AI. And, and, and there's a lot of talk about concerns about the wide range of online practices, um, somewhat pejoratively labeled commercial surveillance here. Uh, and so um, it, it seems like the agency is trying to get a sense of what people are really worried about in this space. Um, as it decides whether or not to, to move ahead with a, a more fulsome uh, rulemaking process. And I, I should say that process is likely to be quite long um, because of the, the requirements of Congress. Uh, there's, there are some extra barriers in, on top of what your, your listeners might think of as regular administrative uh, law rulemakings. And so some of the hurdles uh, include things like hearings where it, it looks a little bit like a trial um, where people, every commenter can get their, their, uh, their say in a public hearing, um, which is not the normal thing that we do in, in APA rulemaking. So uh, this could be a long process. I think the commission is, my read of this is that the commission is 
just asking a bunch of questions it wants to know. Um, and it's sort of trying to build a record to maybe do something, uh, you know, if I guess, do something pretty aggressive in the online tracking space, uh, the online um, advertising space. So that's that's my guess. Well, based on your read of this very long set of rules, as well as your knowledge of the FTC past and and present, are there particular projects or goals or moves that you suspect the FTC might be planning on making, uh, especially in in sort of data collection or data privacy spaces? Yeah, so I think um, you could take some of that from the separate statements of the commissioners uh, at the end, what they emphasized as particular concerns. And a lot of it was centered around algorithmic bias, um, being concerned about how collection of data online might affect, um, you know, historically disadvantaged groups. Uh, there was a lot of talk about that. Um, uh, and there is there that, that was certainly a, a, a chunk of the questions in in the document itself. Um, uh, Another area I think is likely, and we see this in Congress as well, is is concern around children's information. Um, all of these are things that are much more politically uh, viable as far as um, uh, getting rules passed. And, and given that this is the agency's first crack at uh, a broad general privacy rulemaking, uh, it does seem to make some sense to peel off. Uh, maybe some of the issues that are the most politically viable. So, uh, so I would expect that. I mean, they don't ask a lot of questions about this, but it does seem like the area that would have been the easier thing to do was is around data security. There are very well established um, baseline practices that, nonetheless, are, are consistently violated in in the commercial space. Um, that the agency could have, uh, I think, pretty quickly, relatively quickly, said, "Hey, we're going to make rules around, you know, some basic data security stuff that um, will, you know, tackle some of the low-hanging fruit and make it possible." I should, I should say, one thing that a rule makes possible uh, that is more challenging for the agency otherwise is that they can, um, uh, if they have an established rule, they can. Uh, they can bring fines in the first instance. Otherwise, typically, the agency has to um, have a, a, a an order with a company that violates it, and then the violation of that order would be a fining offense. Um, I'm leaving out a lot of nuance there, but that is the general. That is one of the main reasons that. Uh, an agency or that the FTC has said that it, it would like to have uh, rules in this space. Well, so reducing algorithmic bias, protecting children, increasing data security, those those all sound pretty okay. Yeah, they're great. Are, 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 are there particular concerns that people have uh, in those spaces or, or things that they're concerned the FTC might do in pursuit of those goals that might have unforeseen or undesirable consequences? 
Well, I, I mean, I, I should say, you know, I, I'm painting the uh, what I think would be the most politically viable uh, rulemakings to come out of this. I should point out that there are questions in the AMPR that are like, should we ban targeted advertising, right? Like, um, uh, which would obviously have quite an effect on the internet economy. And so um, uh, the, the more narrow examples I give, yes, there's always trade-offs in some of this. You know, even ch uh, children's privacy protections are uh, run into all these issues around who are you, like, uh, like children under 13 are, are treated sort of one set of ways under, you know, First Amendment law. And then above that, there's some complicated issues around uh, you're suppressing basically the ability of, of, you know, of children to participate, children or teenagers who to participate in forums that they might very much benefit from participating from, or at the very least, they have the right to, uh, under uh, First Amendment law, to, to, to participate in. So that runs into a whole bunch of areas. So even the simple ones are not super simple. Um, but some of the more uh, complicated issues that the commission raises or some of the more um, broad stroke uh, questions that the commission asks, I think, uh, do raise a lot of concerns. Uh, you know, I will get to my, my, my sort of fun project. I should say that I also submitted like a, a more substantive comment, um, which has gotten far less press. I guess that'll uh, <laughs> that'll teach me. Um, along with Jim Harper of AEI, uh, that focuses very much on the framing of the AMPR uh, and talks about why um, referring to this as commercial surveillance is, is, is the wrong framing if the commission wants to effectively build a record that will allow it to have a, a legally sustainable rule. Um, uh, and so, uh, you know, I, I'm happy to dig into that, but it's less fun than the other comments. <laughs> yeah, maybe you could just spend like a, a few minutes just kind of outlining those more substantive objections, because I do think it's a helpful framing for thinking about your your additional intervention in in the process. Yeah. So I, I think, um, you know, the the goal of the administrative of administrative law is to have agencies proceed um, in an open way uh, that involves all stakeholders and that builds a, a record that allows them to to objectively judge you know the benefits and costs of a rulemaking and um, this ampr has some characteristics that are very strange if that was your goal um, the first one being, I already mentioned that the title itself talks about commercial surveillance. It does not talk about privacy, um, which is strange given the FTC's long history in the privacy space. Uh, another thing that's problematic here is that the FTC sort of selects out of its past history um, one major omission um, in the in the AMPR is that there is not a single reference to the 2012 privacy report that the commission put out after a series, I think, of four different workshops uh, and you know uh, multiple years of, of work that sort of became the foundation for how the commission pursued privacy cases. It's very strange that that's not even mentioned in this AMPR. They talk about the FTC's past enforcement actions, but they don't mention the previous framework. And that... Um, 
uh, I think that that distorts the that that is likely to distort the record as well because it um, it doesn't ask the commission doesn't ask about you know why was the previous framework not working uh, and questions like that they will get answers on that I think there are plenty of people who will remind them that they had a previous framework but um, but it does sort of uh, prejudge the uh, the effect I mean the main concern one of the main concerns that that Jim and I raise is that by using the term surveillance for, um, uh, and if you look at the definition of surveillance in the AMPR, it is extremely broad. It includes stuff like a business, it's basically any trans, uh, translation of information between a business and a, and, a, and a consumer. And that would include things as innocuous as you know, providing your shipping address so your product could show up on your doorstep. Um, you know, the commission just calls that surveillance. Uh, and that really broad definition of surveillance has a couple of uh, downsides. Um, uh, maybe the most interesting one is that it really dil dilutes the term. Surveillance is intended to talk about the relationship, the power relationships. And it's usually reserved for the relationship between a citizen and, and you know, the state. And, and in those cases, surveillance is very uh, problematic. It's why we have a whole constitutional uh, restrictions on when the government can do that. Um, and so using that to talk about something as innocuous and common as you know, giving your shipping address to a, a company, I think dilutes the term and maybe risks um, our ability to really accurately talk about some uses of data by government that are really concerning that I think everybody should be worried about. So uh, I, I think it also just blurs the um, ability to focus on what the real, what the harm is that we're trying to, that the commission is trying to, trying to address here. Um, and, and it, you know, like I said, it, it separates the commission and this AMPR a little bit from its, or quite a lot from its past history of how it approached these issues. And so, um, yeah, I, I think those are maybe some of the main problems of this commercial surveillance framing that they use, uh, and I, I, I worry about it. And Jim and I, in our comment, talk uh, at some length about that. Well, I got to ask, I mean, why do you think they would have omitted this previous primary uh, privacy framework from from the process? Does that suggest anything about their plans or whether they're planning to deviate from that previous framework? Yeah, I mean, to me, I mean, the, the, I think the obvious implication is that they're sort of dustbinning that um, and they want to do something totally new and different. Um, the, the previous framework is, it's not perfect, right? I mean, in part, it's hinged very much to the FTC's statutory authority on consumer protection around deception and unfairness um, because the FTC did not have separate, does not have separate, uh, you know, privacy, general privacy law. So um, I think they want to rethink that. I mean, that, that's, that's my guess. I, it's weird that you wouldn't mention it though and say like, Hey, we're moving away from this particular, this previous version. Uh, and I don't, I don't have a good theory for why that was the choice. It, it can't have been a mistake that it's not in there, um, but I don't have a good theory for why it's not in there. Hmm. Well, so maybe we can move into talking about your your other comments. Yeah. 
as well. Maybe you could talk a little bit about the subject matter that they relate to, um, how you created them, and why you created them in that way. Uh, sure. So um, I was sitting around in my kitchen on a Sunday morning playing with uh, Everybody knows about ChatGPT now. Well, maybe not everybody knows, but it seems like everybody on Twitter knows anyways. Uh, ChatGPT, which is OpenAI's um, framework for, uh, it's a large language model that you can type in questions or comments or requests, and uh, it will give you uh, conversational answers, um, which are shockingly interesting <laughs> i don't know i don't know how much you've played with it brian i think a little um i i've, I've found it to be very a very interesting tool and uh, uh judging from the reaction on twitter uh, there's lots of other people who who agree um there was a previous version of that it's the exact same code underneath but uh that i had i had you know subscribed to before the chat gpt thing came out called playground and so one sunday morning i was just playing with it in there and i was like oh i wonder what it would like like wonder what wonder what chat GPT would say about, you know, FTC rulemakings on privacy. And so I just played around with a bunch of different prompts. I thought it was really interesting. And I thought, you know what, this, I should just, I should just turn this into a comment uh, in the, uh, the privacy or the uh, cap, uh, commercial surveillance AMPR. And so um, I did, I came up with, uh, I, I did it in the form of, you know, I've, I've been doing, administrative comments for a long time. Most of them were to the FCC in the past because that's where most of the rulemaking action is. Uh, and it's very common to do a, a, a sort of grassroots approach where you ask a bunch of people, maybe on your website to submit comments and then you collect them all and you file them under a cover letter uh, that sort of explains the overall, your overall group's uh, approach and 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 then you in an appendix you file all the comments from the individuals. So I thought it would be funny to do that with, uh, you know, Chat GPT or GPT three, um, where I put in prompts about various issues in the FTC privacy AMPR and had uh, GPT three respond as if it were an AI bot talking to the FTC. So as a commenter. Um, uh, and I got some really fun results. Um, you know, uh, like everything in chat GPT, uh, or GPT three, the prompt drives a lot of the substance. So there is substance in this. Um, and as I think Epic, I, I, I tweaked some feathers apparently over at the, um, uh, Epic because they wrote a whole blog post, uh, calling my. I think they called my submitted comment the worst comment in the record, um, uh, which, <laughs> you know, whatever. I, I, I didn't, I didn't line these up as, as you know, my substantive views. Although they certainly reflect my somewhat skepticism of, of, uh, of these types of regulations and highlight one potential um, harm of restricting information online, which is that it might, it might lead to. Um, less representative or uh, less functional large language models like like chat GPT three. So so a lot of my questions are sort of in that frame or my prompts are, but the responses I think are pretty interesting in um, not just on the substance, because again, like all things chat GPT and GPT three, you're sort of getting 
the average thing from the internet, right? <laughs> the, the average answer from the internet. It's very hard. I actually thought you were, uh, I think this is you. I think you said somewhere on, uh, uh, maybe on Twitter, or maybe you have a paper on it already. I don't know. You seem very uh, productive. Um, saying that if if your response is something that chat GPT generates, you, you're probably not saying anything that interesting. I think you're right. I mean, generally speaking. Um, it's interesting that a computer is saying it, but generally on substance, it's not it's not super interesting, right? Like the format can be interesting, but the substance, you know, you're getting sort of the the zeitgeist of the internet all smashed into one uh, one one little uh, squeezing it through one little hole of your prompt, basically. So, um, uh, so on the substance, the substance of the comments, uh, like I said, clearly a biased framing. Uh, but to me, it was the form that was interesting and the potential uh, implications that it has for uh, administrative law rulemakings in the future. Um, yeah, so I'm, uh, I'm, I, you know, I, I think, I think automated comments are. Com I mean, automated comments have been with us for a long time, but automated comments that look pretty genuine and unique used to be a lot harder to make. They are going. They are very easy to make now. And uh, and agencies need to be aware that this is coming, um, and I think that we'll probably have to develop some you know procedural and technical tools to help them continue to make sense of a flood of uh, a potential flood of AI generated comments. So I've been rambling for a little bit, but well, Neil, I mean, based on what you just said, I, part of me can't help but wonder whether automated co comments or comments generated by large language AI models might on average improve the quality of commentary. I, I, I mean, you can see a world in which you set up a, you know, your old prompt used to be, here's some template language that you could cut and paste uh, to send an email to the FTC to comment in this proceeding. You can see now that you could go to a website and they could say, like, write a prompt that sort of suggests, like, what you think, what you're concerned about, what are your concerns? And then it just takes that prompt, runs it through this chat GPT AI, and it writes like a nice substantive comment um, that, that reflects that concern. Um, and so, yes, you could have, uh, I think, uh, I hadn't thought about this, but Right now, it's relatively easy for the agencies to sort of dismiss. I shouldn't say that. They're under the law. They're not allowed to dismiss comments, but they have to address every substantive issue that's raised in a rulemaking. Um, but they can sort of like quickly be like, this is a low quality comment. We're not going to spend a ton of time on it. That's going to be a lot harder now because you could have a high volume of what look like very high quality comments which have unique substantive issues in them and the commission and the commission or whatever agency is going to have to work harder to extract all of those in a way that it is actually required to uh, under the law. And so I think large language models could be very good at helping agencies do that, but you know, it's, it's it might look a little bit like a little bit of an arms race. So, mm -hmm. well, so for listeners who might not understand the technology at issue all that well, how might this rulemaking process affect the application and development 
of these large language AI models? Yeah. So uh, again, somewhat facetiously, I have prompts in here that are like, um, write a lengthy regulatory comment to the Federal Trade Commission from an AI bot concerned that privacy regulation could distort AI development and infringe on AI's First Amendment rights. Um, and and so uh, it's somewhat tongue in cheek, but there is a real concern. And I, I do have a concern that our emphasis on privacy is a uh, against the grain of our also or conflicts with our interest in understanding the world better. Um, I've called this in past work, uh, you know, the increase in legibility. I'm just stealing that term from James C. Scott. Um, uh, and technology, you know, a huge part of technical development, everything from the microscope to the to the telescope, has been making the world more legible so that we can do things and getting more information. And the online information is, uh, online environment is inherently quite legible. Uh, it kind of has to be uh, to function well. And so um, uh, in some ways it's, you can think of privacy and this is very pejorative. I'm, I, 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 I am a supporter of privacy for many different reasons, but you could sort of think of privacy as a way of making us collectively dumber about the world. Uh, and when you're building a large language model, which is assembled by, in many ways, by scraping huge amounts of data that are publicly available off the internet and dumping that into a, uh, you know, a, a massive deep learning um, algorithm, you're, you're going to have an effect on quality if you're, if you're taking information out. Now, as the epic comment quite rightly replied, where they typed in, you know, their view in prompts and got back, um, chat GPT in particular is not based on private information by people, right? Um, it is, you know, it's not, it's not ingesting people's, I mean, maybe it is ingesting people's birthdays and stuff, but it's not, it's not using them for anything, right? And so, that concern is a little bit facetious for the chat GPT space, but I think in general, the point holds that there is a trade-off between understanding the world better, uh, you know, and to be fair, when you understand the world better, you can misuse that knowledge. And I think that's what a lot of people who are concerned about privacy are worried about. Um, but there is a tension there between understanding the world better and having, uh, you know, having privacy, privacy rights, especially ones that are uh, set under law. So, um, so that was uh, that's sort of what my some of the comments get at. Uh, you know, they they say things like it could limit the data that AI systems. I'm, I'm just quoting from ChatGPT at this point. Uh, it could limit the data that AI systems have access to, which could limit their ability to learn and improve. It can make it more difficult for AI systems to share information with each other, which can make it harder for them to collaborate and learn from each other. And it can make it more difficult for AI systems to communicate with humans, um, which could limit their ability to provide us with valuable insights and solve, uh, help us solve problems. But, um, and I won't get into the First Amendment arguments because, uh, again, they're, they're pretty generic, <laughs> but, but, uh, but it, it, you know, it's fun to see them uh, slap together things like that. Well, broadly speaking, you've been studying 
innovation for a long time. A, a lot of people are talking about AI now, but sometimes not all that sophisticated a fashion. What have you found surprising or exciting about AI development, especially some of these new large language model tools? And what do you see coming down down the pike? What what do you what do you expect or what do you hope will happen next? Well, I mean, yeah, so I've I have a master's in computer science. So I've been interested in AI for a long time. And the funniest thing in AI is that uh if you look at the history of AI, every t- every single time a problem that was called AI gets solved, people stop calling it AI. So like, I mean, when I was a kid, like chess playing was like the cutting edge of AI research, essentially, right? Like now nobody really calls chess games, like they don't think of it as AI, like maybe they might casually call it that, but like, it's not what people think of as AI. Uh, speech recognition was another like cutting edge area. Now nobody thinks of that as AI, really. So every single time AI uh solves a problem people stop they're like oh well that that's actually not very intelligent uh, it does feel like something's a little bit different here um maybe in six months people won't call you know text analysis or this type of text generation ai uh, but i think they probably will it feels different and the thing that's different i think is um very quickly having a consumer i think i think chat gpt has a million users already right like um uh i think it took netflix four years to get to a million users it took chat gpt like two weeks or something right um uh it it feels different because there is a very consumer facing you can play with it you can try it out uh you can see how it works and is an interface that you know, a, a huge chunk of the population understands um, it, as as compared to, and you don't have to buy new hardware, right? Like you could do this on your phone, right? And so I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of access to this really powerful tool that cost a ton of money and that, to be clear, has been in the works for a really long time. So we're, we're all experiencing this moment as like, boom, it's like this big explosion, but OpenAI has been working on this for a long time. So uh, so that does feel different to me. Um, I think, you know, what will happen next, I, I think there will be a, um, there will be a, a bit of a backlash. You've already seen some of that, some of the skepticism about like how, what what are the outputs and how can people like, like hack the prompts to get chat GPT to say something terrible or criminal or like, you know, biased or, uh, and, you know, that's, 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 good. I mean, I, I think that's good stress testing, but I think what I think ultimately was going to happen is that people are going to play with this. They're going to see like, oh, wow, this is like, I wish I had like a feature like this in Word. Um, you know, and uh, I just found this out the other day. Um, turns out Microsoft is a major investor in open AI. So you may see a feature like this in Word pretty soon. Um, uh, uh, so, so I, so I, yeah, so I, I think that people are going like this, chat gpt release is a sort of learn by doing uh it may push us through the sort of tech panic cycle pretty quickly um compared to the the sort of level of impact that this tech may have and so i think you'll see people using this a lot um to write i hey I, i used it last week to write like three emails right like 
And I, I think it might go up. If And if it was incorporated into Outlook, I would use it a lot more. So um, uh, just as a test. And so so I think you will see normal people using it to, you know, to the way they the way they use spell check now. Um, and I, as a person who loves text and loves content generation, uh, I'm pretty excited about it. So um, I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I, I'm su I'm super curious how like how this intersects with uh, you know plagiarism and copyright stuff. And I I'm not an expert in either of those spaces, but you kind of are. So you yeah yeah. Well, I don't usually do this, but I'll, okay. So <laughs> I actually wrote a, a law review article using uh, chat GPT. Uh, and the question, it was basically, I asked it a series of, of different questions. Um, and the, the initial prompt or the initial question was, should using a, uh, should using a, a AI language to, or text generator uh, to create a scholarly text be considered plagiarism? And Despite my best efforts, I could not get the text generator to agree with me that <laughs> plagiarism was good, and therefore we shouldn't be concerned about uh, using the text generator to create scholarly text. And I think that for me, that was interesting because it reflected the fact that what the AI is producing is always the conventional wisdom. Right. It's yeah. it's telling you what the overwhelming majority of people think, and it won't tell you anything else unless in many cases, even if you kind of instruct it to, because it it didn't have a data set that enabled it to answer in the affirmative a prompt like, why is plagiarism so beautiful or why is plagiarism so necessary? It just pushed back and said, you're wrong. That's that's not that's not true. And I guess. What, what really strikes me is like one of the interesting kind of aspects or things that this new innovation, this technological innovation shows us is just how generic mu much of human content production actually is. We have this kind of myth of creativity, but the reality is that most of what people do is generate pablum that is utterly lacking in any kind of innovation or creativity. And honestly, that's why these, these text generators can mimic it so effectively. Yeah. I, yeah. I love that. And um, a couple of quick thoughts, like in some ways, the problem that we create, uh, it, what, what it shows is that the, the text and the message that we're sending often matter a lot less than who it's between. Um, uh, and that there's some information contained in the connection between the sender and the receiver, for example, in my email, even if the email itself is totally boring, it doesn't mean anything really. I mean, it doesn't add anything to the corpus of human you know, knowledge. Um, uh, the other thing that I think is really interesting is, you know, we think a lot, I, I think a lot in my, in my day job about how do we, um, how do we change paradigms? How do we, how do we, uh, how do we influence society to think about new things? And the big question is, how do you measure uh, paradigm shifts. Well, it kind of seems like chat GPT might be a relatively good way to measure paradigm shifts. What you're pointing out is that the paradigm of plagiarism as a positive thing is so dominated by plagiarism as a bad thing that it doesn't even, it, you cannot get chat GPT to even make that argument. And so you might be able to sort of, there, there's lots of issues in here. And I, I think, you know, people have pointed out where you can get chat GPT to disagree with itself. Uh, at 
given different prompts. And in those, you know, their paradigms are represented like maybe more in a more balanced way. And so I think there's some potential to use chat GPT as a test of what is the general paradigm on this issue out there in the world, uh, at least the internet world as we know it. And so, uh, yeah, I think there will be lots of creative uses for this type of thing uh, that that are, go beyond just pure content generation. So I'm, I'm pretty excited about the future, right? It does feel like something's changed with this coming right on the heels of, you know, Dolly, the image generation stuff. And um, I think it's going to be an exciting next uh, next couple of years for people who generate content, including, you know, law professors and comment filers at, at the uh, at federal agencies. So, yeah, well, just FYI, Neil, I stole that idea from your subconscious last night because I already started writing the paper. Awesome. That's great. I love it. I can't wait to read it. <laughs> Amazing. This was so much fun. I really enjoyed talking to you about this, Neil, and uh, I can't wait to share this interview with my listeners. Thanks for having me on. Those words were spoken by an electronic computer. They are an example of synthetic speech, a product of Bell Telephone Laboratory's research into the basic nature of speech. Knowledge developed through such research may be useful in devising new techniques for transmitting speech over communication systems. To make the computer talk, it is fed punched cards containing the names of speech sounds. The computer combines these sounds in accordance with the linguistic rules which govern the English language into connected, intelligible speech. For example, when the sounds for the sentence, he saw the cat, are fed into the computer in sequence, it says, he saw the cat. The flat, monotonous tones of the computer indicate an absence of the pitch and timing characteristics natural to human speech. When timing information is added to the punch cards, the computer says, He saw the cat. The sentence still sounds unnatural, but when pitch information also is added to the cards, He saw the cat. The computer speaks in accents almost completely human, except for a slight electronic twang. In the following sentence, most of the variables inherent in human speech have been specified on the punch cards. The computer makes one of the pivotal remarks in the development of the telephone. Mr. Watson, come here. I want you. The present quality of speech synthesis by computer is illustrated in the next example, part of a famous soliloquy from Hamlet. To be or not to be, that is the question. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or to take arms against a sea of troubles, and by opposing end them to die, to sleep. Singing, in purely physical terms, is essentially a matter of pitch and timing. In the next selection, the computer sings a familiar ditty. Daisy, Daisy, give me your answer to. I'm half crazy, all for the love of you. It won't be a stylish marriage, 
I can't afford a carriage, but you look sweet upon the seat of a bicycle built for two. The computer now sings the same tune, but to a musical accompaniment played by another computer. Piano students will notice that the music-producing computer has a rather stylized left hand. Incidentally, synthesizing music on a computer is almost as formidable as making a computer talk. Daisy, Daisy, give me your answer to I'm crazy all for the love of you. It won't be a stylish marriage. I can't afford a carriage. But you look sweet upon the seat of a bicycle built for two. To get the samples of synthesized speech we've heard so far, a computer's memory was stored with 34 speech sounds and a set of rules for producing these sounds and for making the transitions from one sound to another. When the computer was fed the names of speech sounds on punched cards, it was, in effect, told what to say. But its manner of saying it, even its dialect and apparent accent, was determined by the rules stored in its memory. The objective of this program is to formulate a minimum set of rules for making plausible English speech. The next two selections, however, were produced by analyzing a person's speech and reconstructing it synthetically on a computer. The objective here is to duplicate the sounds and transitions made by a human speaker, including his dialect and accent. With such a program, the computer sounds like this. Men strive but seldom get rich. Now, if you don't mind, I'd like to say a few words about Texas. And now the computer would like to express its appreciation for your attention. Thanks for listening. <laughs>